Hey there, my name is David Ryan Olson, and after a decade in the music industry, I have noticed that the artists that find the most success and have the longest lasting careers are the ones who have taken the time to invest in themselves, both personally and professionally, learning the ins and outs of the music business and getting their head in the right place. So that's what this podcast is all about. This is the Music Business Mindset Podcast. Welcome to the Music Business Mindset Podcast, where we are all about helping you grow personally and professionally as an artist so you can have a nice, long, lasting, and financially viable music career. Today's episode is amazing. I think it should be required listening for any artist ever, no matter what level you are trying to pursue music. Even if you don't want music to be your full-time job, I think you should listen to this podcast. So share it with your friends. You'll hear why very soon, why I'm so excited about this episode. Our guest today is a guy whose mortal name is Ty Christian. His metal immortal god name, I can't remember how to actually pronounce it, but it's its Fang Von Rathenstein or something like that. He'll say that. But they have a band called Lords of the Trident, and they are the most metal band on earth. That is literally what they have plastered all over their site, and it is the best description, the most apt description I've ever heard. But because of the fact that they've leaned into that branding so hard and have figured out who they are and are just really awesome people, they have cultivated deep relationships with their fans that have let them crush their Patreon game. They have a whole bunch of Patreon subscribers that are giving anywhere between $1 and $50, $60 a month just for putting out fun music. I'll let him share the rest of the story, but it's really incredible. I think if you are an artist that's been on the fence about Patreon or has considered doing something but kind of not been sure whether it's the right time or whether you have anything to offer, please listen to this episode and I think your mind will be changed. Even if you're not pursuing music full-time, I think he'll make a very good case for being able to get just a little bit extra cash each month. So I'm going to shut up now and let the immortal metal god Fang Von Rathenstein, aka Ty Christian of Lords of the Trident, just take the show. So let's jump in. Ty Christian of Lords of the Trident. Dude, how are you doing? I am. I'm sorry. I was calling you by the wrong name there. What is your name? Yes. How dare you call me by my mortal alias? <laughs> Because my real barbarian name, of course, is Fang von Rathenstein, lead singer of the most metal band on earth, the Lords of the Trident. <laughs> but of course, of course, there's two reasons that I go by Ty Christian. First, sometimes you need to go incognito. Sometimes the legions of fans waiting outside of the venue, you got to like duck around. <laughs> Second, and more importantly, Fang von Rathenstein is a really long name. And I don't know if you've been down to the DMV lately, but they have the things where you enter in your name in the boxes. And they only, they only give you so many boxes. So on my driver's license, it's always Fang von you know, or von Rathenstein. <laughs> and so I'm like, what's the shortest possible name that's out there? Oh, Ty, T-Y. That's two letters. I don't think that, you know, other than Al, I don't look like an Al. I'm more of a Ty. <laughs> no, I don't think... You could be a Bo or a Joe. Maybe, maybe. But I like Ty. Ty works. Anyway, I just imagine that your life is just a walking metalocalypse. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, going everywhere, you're swimming through the fans and 
and all that. Yeah, I mean, at least where like all the fire is concerned, that's that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah, this this basement is basically a, a powder keg, and it's all my doing. <laughs> uh, my wife is she has asked me since we've been doing live streaming a lot lately. Since I mean, twenty twenty no shows, we jumped over to live streaming. One of the very first things that she she sort of politely demanded was, "Hey, uh, don't set." your giant sword that you've lined with sparkling cannon fuse on fire in the basement. <laughs> you have to do that outside or on the show. You can light your microphones on fire. You can light your guitars on fire, but I'm not comfortable with the giant flaming sword. So please don't do that. <laughs> Plus it would be a shame if you accidentally lit all the uh, classic video game machines I see behind you on fire. We'll get to talking about that. <laughs> Over here, there's a pinball machine that I just built. Oh, sick, dude. Virtual pinball. Yeah. Just finish that up. You know what? Screw it. Let's stop talking about the music business and just talk about old school games. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Here's the segue. I run a yearly festival called Mad with Power Fest. It's an arcade, pinball, and heavy metal festival. We take a medium-sized venue here in town, about 500 capacity venue, and we fill all of the available like wall space with free play arcade and pinball. So it's basically like walking into a gigantic arcade, but it's a two-day heavy metal festival. So in between the bands, or you know, if you're just not digging one band, you can go play Discs of Tron or, you know, Mortal Kombat, you know, as much as you want. And also speaking of Mortal Kombat, every year we get the guy who played Shang Tsung in Mortal Kombat 2 is is a buddy of ours that we met through weird connections and he comes down to our fest every year and he like signs autographs plays mortal Kombat with people it's so much fun it's called mad with power fest it's sold out in 80 hours this year we've got live stream tickets available but if your listeners are interested in that if that sounds cool it's in madison wisconsin we have it about every august so watch the website we'll get tickets coming up for next year soon <laughs> yeah that's where you're at is in wisconsin yep we're out of madison wisconsin kind of lower lower southern wisconsin so i used to live way up north in uh, you know in northern wisconsin you know earlier and so i got this accent and i got some hot dish and <laughs> uh well and later when i came down to madison i just kind of lost it you know you just you drink soda instead of pop so it's it you just go it just goes away once you start saying soda <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times, good times. Well, but dude, thanks so much for joining us. Would love just to kind of jump in and talk about how you got into the music business. Yeah, it's kind of a family thing. I actually, like my grandparents were in a band and I remember when I was very young, going over to their house, hanging out and just seeing posters on the walls of them, you know, from their shows and playing. And, you know, anytime we would go, to a place. It seemed like everybody knew who they were. Anytime we were with other friends of theirs, you know, they would they break out the accordions and there'd be polka. They just have a big old polka hoedown going on. And it just seemed so cool. And then years later, I found out that my mom had two gold records from being in the Duluth Accordionaires, which was an all accordion orchestra that toured around the world. Like an entire 60-piece orchestra, but all accordions. <laughs> what? <laughs> Picture that. And yeah, it was wild. So she has, she has two gold records. And so like taking piano lessons when I was young was just sort of a given. It was like sending your kids off to soccer. My parents were like, yeah, piano lessons. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I uh, did that, started taking voice lessons when I was 10. 
my musical tastes kind of matured around the grunge era and I and I wanted to start a band and started a garage band with some of my high school friends and my guitarist quit. And so I'm like, ah, I could probably figure out guitar. Why not? So I picked up a guitar and started doing that. So I've been in bands since I was like, I don't know, 14 and a half, 15. And then all, all throughout college and then post-college, you know, it's basically been 90% of what I've done with my life. So... <laughs> So yeah, that's that's basically the story. And and now I uh, I've started up this band, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. We played all over the world and we have a a pretty decent following and people seem to like what we do and and then on the side I also do opera. I've been taking opera lessons for the last I don't know, 3-4 years and and so I've been incorporating that a lot into some of the content that we make for our YouTube channel. We do like a power metal opera battles over Skype kind of a thing. That was something that came out during the pandemic where we just challenge a lot of power metal vocalists that I know to do an opera battle back and forth. And so that, that's been really, really fun. So, you know, I, I just, I have been involved in music and the industry for a long, long time. Along the way, I've met and befriended a lot of really cool people who've been in the industry a lot longer than I have. One of my mentors kind of on this journey was uh, Martin Atkins. He was a drummer for Nine Inch Nails pig face, killing joke, big white-haired British guy, you know, and you'd be like, oh, Ty, your band is so bad. Uh, uh, I, I think you should try to make it better. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Martin, just keep insulting me in that voice. It's so great. Oh, yeah, you should really learn how to sing better because if people are running away from you. <laughs> and why aren't you printing your own T-shirts? Are you, are, you, are you stupid? Do you like giving other people your money? And, uh, you know, so so he's a very big DIY buff. He he wrote, um, he's written a number of books on DIY touring and DIY band management and stuff like that. Band Smart and Tour Smart. They're kind of like the, the touring uh, Bible and the, the band Bible, for me at least. So I was very happy to be able to work with him for many years one-on-one. He's given me a lot of really great advice over the years. So it's, yeah, I basically just go around to all sorts of, you know, music, conferences and shake babies and kiss hands and you know that's just kind of do what i do (laughs) yeah you know it's interesting that you talked about doing opera and power metal because there is a lot of crossover between power metal and opera and some other forms of metal and classical music it's just kind of dressed up differently and a lot more distortion oh absolutely I mean, you know, for people who don't sort of live and breathe in the power metal world, when they hear, oh, you know, you're an opera vocalist and you're also a power metal vocalist, they're like, huh? <laughs> but if you just kind of pay attention to the way that most people perform power metal or even some forms of earlier heavy metal in general, yeah, it's incredibly operatic. And you need that strength. It's, it's incredibly technical, incredibly difficult, and incredibly operatic. And you really need that background to be able to do it. Ronnie James Dio and Bruce Dickinson brilliant brilliant vocalists yeah and and i mean that's that kind of large operatic singing to the back of the rafters kind of vocals that fits right in in our genre which is frankly part of the reason why i picked up starting to do opera because i needed that little extra boost to try to compete i suppose (laughs) or just get better well were you always interested in doing metal power metal or did you ever try and do like pop rock or pop or whatever I started out doing uh, alternative rock and kind of funky, kind of grunge-esque. My favorite band, still to this day, my first love in terms of bands, was Pearl Jam. And I still am a proud, card-carrying member of the 10 Club. I get the LPs every year. I mean, it's great. But that's the kind of style that I started out in. And I found that I sort of always skewed 
a little heavier. You know, so I, I always really enjoyed the more heavy Pearl Jam stuff or like Soundgarden, you know, kind of the more heavy side of the grunge. And that's kind of how my earlier bands kind of sounded in, in that way. I thought all the way up until college that, you know, when somebody said metal, I thought dudes with long hair, pointy guitars going like, blah, 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 and like angry at their dads, you know, daddy never loved me, yeah! you know. And it, it wasn't actually until I was a roommate in college with, who is now my best friend and the lead guitarist in the band, Aki, he and I would be studying on our computers and he'd be quietly in the background playing heavy metal because he's really into heavy metal. And I'd be on my computer and I'd sort of like hear that and I'd, I'd lean over and be like, what, what is that? You know, what, what song is that? And he's like, oh, that's, that's Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden. I'm like, huh, okay, okay. What, you know, next one comes up like, oh, that's Dio. Oh, that's kind of that's kind of good. Like, oh, okay, all right, you know. And it and it wasn't until um, later on that year he ran into somebody who was just this insane shredder who lived in the same dorms as us, and they were hanging out in our room one night, just shredding back and forth, you know. And they tapped me on the shoulder. I was playing some video game or something. They tapped me on the shoulder and they're like, "Hey, Ty, can you record this like on your computer somehow?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know. Let's find out." <laughs> And we were awake until like three in the morning recording the first like minute and 30 seconds of this song that we had come up with. And I think it was around one in the morning. They're like, oh, we need vocals on this. Ty, you sing, you, you sing in your band, like just do vocals. <laughs> and I'm like, but wait, I, they're like, no, no, just, 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 you know, it's for fun. Just do it. Just do it. You know, I don't have any words. Just make them up. Just make them up. You know, whatever. So it was one in the morning brain and they hit record and I put my headphones on and like this guitar comes over and I'm like, uh, through the night, through the dawn of time, we will stay. You know, and I start like making up these lyrics on the fly, like just trying to think of like the most epic things I can. And <laughs> those lyrics are still the lyrics to that song, which was on our first record. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, this the shit that came out of my brain at like one in the morning. At two in the morning, we grabbed all of the guys on the floor who were still awake, and we piled them into our dorm room, and we had them add background shouting vocals like, fight, die. <laughs> and the RA came by, you know, and they're like, guys, we can't have you screaming, <laughs> fight and die at the top of your lungs at two in the morning. And so that's how the band started. And and we had so much fun doing that, just figuring out. And I mean, the, the, the recording sounds terrible, terrible, because I have no idea what I was doing. But we had so much fun, like, putting that together. We're like, you want to do this next weekend? And so we started, you know, so we next weekend we made, like, a full song. And then a couple weeks later, we made another full song. And it just kind of went from there. Back uh, when we when we were doing that, Facebook had like just launched, and it was only colleges. So everybody on Facebook at that time that we were friends with were all at University of Wisconsin Madison, like within a block of each other. So we all knew each other, and so we started sharing this dumb, terrible music that we were making at two in the morning on Facebook. And I don't know why, but for some reason, everybody was like, yeah, you know, and started like listening to it. And our third or fourth show ever was our CD release when we released our a CD that we kind of slopped together. And we had 140 people in this like 100 capacity venue singing along. 
and this was this was supposed to be like a little summer fun side project. My band was breaking up. We were all going our separate ways. You know, some guys were going off to grad school. One guy was going to MIT. And so we're like, well, let's just do Lords of the Trident like for fun over the summer. Like, you know, we'll play a couple shows. We'll release this CD. It'll be a fun time. And yeah, like 140 people crammed into this 100 capacity venue and they were like crowd surfing. And that never, never happened with my other alternative rock and funk band. That was like the things that you like you dreamed of. And suddenly it was happening with this like band that we've, you know, sort of slopped together in our dorm rooms. And I remember I remember it very vividly after the show. We were down in the green room downstairs in the basement, all in costume, kind of mouth agape, just sort of looking at each other. And I go, so I guess we want to keep doing this then, huh? <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How much do you think your success with that was just because when I think of, you know, alternative bands that I've been in or helped, people think they're taking themselves too seriously. And like kind of the premise of Lords of the Trident sounds like it's just like, oh, we're going to be as epic as possible just for the heck of it. Do you think that was just kind of a contagious spirit that people caught on to is just having fun? So I, I think one of the big things that helped out quite a bit is I had experience being in a couple bands before Lords of the Trident and going through the experience of like trying to book ourselves on shows and trying to craft a band mystique, a band image, a band, you know, whatever, a feel to the band. When I joined Lords of the Trident, I had very, very little heavy metal experience. But what I did have was the outsider's perspective of what heavy metal was. It was basically what I said earlier. I was like, Joe Schmo on the street, when you say heavy metal, they think, that's not something I want to go see. That's not something I want to listen to. That's angry. That's like dissonant and, you know, screeching and ugh. It's like that guy at Guitar Center or whatever. It's his band on the weekend sort of a thing. Exactly. And so what I wanted to do with it, I had as, as a, I'd picked this up years ago. I, I had a Manowar DVD even before I got, I actually got into heavy metal. I bought this because I was like, this looks so ridiculous. And, and it was. Manowar is absolutely ridiculous. But Manowar kills, man. Yeah, other bands play. Manowar kills. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that I said when we started this band, you know, when we said, like, you know, let's do shows, is I'm like, I want to out Manowar Manowar. I want to take Manowar and then turn it up more, you know, to even more. And so, you know, we, we were tongue-in-cheek. We were tongue-protruding through the cheek. But the thing that I was coming at that from a perspective was I know that if we're just a bunch of dudes and like, you know, cross-armed and like black t-shirts on a poster, nobody on frat row is going to give this a second look. They're just going to be, it's just, oh, it's some other stupid, dumb band, whatever. But if there's a guy dressed up like a barbarian and like a pirate and then a dude with a giant demon, demon head and stuff like that, then people are going to stop and be like, what the heck is this? And even if, <laughs> even if they don't think that they're going to like the music, they might just come to the show just because like, that image sort of portrays something is going to go on at the show. I got to see what this is all about. And that's, that was sort of a bit of the mystique that we wrote on at the beginning. And also, we, I think we just lucked out where the first couple shows that we played, we ended up by complete accident kind of falling in with the local punk community here in Madison. And the bands that we were playing with had like a pretty decent following. So, you know, I'd like to think that those 140 people were all our fans, but they're definitely not. I mean, like it was probably 50-50 where like that band brought half and then the weird rumors on Facebook brought the other half. And I think because we were so tongue-in-cheek, because we were so over-the-top, because we weren't taking ourselves 
as seriously as like other bands, other hard rock bands. The punks loved that. They were like, look at these guys. They know what's going on. They are fun. Oh, those guys are just having a nice time on stage there. You know, the Midwestern mom kind of came out like, oh, well, geez, let's let's bake them a hot dish. Why not? That's so nice. <laughs> and so, yeah, we just became really close friends with them. And that idea, that perspective taking of somebody who's not into the genre and what they think when they see the poster or when they see the band or when they see the music video has always been a real integral part of Lords of the Trident. Because initially, we're in a college town filled with jam bands and like, you know, chill acoustic rock. There wasn't like a metal scene here at all, pretty much. And so we didn't have a lot of people to reach. So we had to reach across genres and across, we had to be a spectacle in order to pull people in and to get people to go, oh, wait, this is heavy metal. This kind of sounds like Kiss and I don't know, like uh, Motley Crue. And then you're like, yeah, Kiss and Motley Crue is kind of also considered heavy metal. And they're like, what? What? No. I always thought it was like that angry stuff when you were angry at your dad and you have pointy BC Rich guitars. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we had, we did do a lot of that. So I think that was a lot of the success early on. And still to this day, it's it's a little bit of that as well. Yeah, you guys have incredible branding in terms of even just your logo of the most metal band on earth and going to your website, your logo, everything fits, right? It's like, okay, you can tell that this is just a power metal band that's having fun, that's doing the, the barbarian thing or, or whatever. How much of that was intentional versus it just kind of naturally evolved from those first few experiences that you talked about. Yeah, it it was all, in terms of the branding and like the backstory and the costumes and stuff like that, it was all very intentional. It all kind of came from my experience. It was part of that, like, let's out Manowar, Manowar kind of feel to what we were trying to do. And I think too, you know, uh, everybody in the band, and, and I would venture to say a lot of the people who currently, you know, are huge fans of Lords of the Trident, we're all like, relatively nerdy, tech-savvy dudes, heavily into, like, high fantasy, D&D, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, stuff like that. So when we were crafting the Lords of the Trident brand, we wanted to bring as much of that into the brand as possible. And at least for all of us, one of the things that they say when a band is starting out and you're trying to, like, craft your approach and your image is to, like, take who you are but turn it up to, like, 11 or 12, right? And that's your onstage persona. And that is exactly what Lords of the Trident is, for me at least. That was 100% accurate to my identity. My original costume that I still wear for, like, the Metal Beer Club videos and and some of the uh, Words of Fang stuff that I do online, that original costume was from my LARPing days. (laughs) 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 when I used to do LARP. So, like, you can see how, okay, you know, LARPer starts up tongue-in-cheek power metal band, how easily that just, all of it just came. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the barbarian. This guy's the samurai. This guy's, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, duh, of course. (laughs) Roll for initiative. Here we go. One, two, three. Yeah. Well, how has it, like, evolved over the years, too, the brand? Yeah, as I've I've doved more and doved, as I've dived. Doged? As I've doged more into the world of marketing, branding, and all that sort of stuff, especially looking and dissecting what other bands do and what other brands do, one of the really interesting pieces of feedback that I heard from a talk back in the day was somebody, it was, it was a brand manager that was going on, and it was not related to music at all, but it was somebody who was talking about there's 30 different voice choices that you can make as a brand. 
So you can be like the jokester, you can be the serious, you can be the healer, you can be the, you know, and it was very sort of like pick your class D&D kind of a thing. But it made so much sense that like, okay, you pick a voice that you use to speak about your brand, or in this case, your band. And if you stick to that voice, then that kind of becomes part of your identity. And one of the nice things that we did early on that we decided on as being the most metal band on earth, but also being tongue in cheek, is that we have this dual voice of like jokester and like overly epic, but they work together perfectly. And the way that that's helped us a hundred percent, and you can see this in other bands like Ailstorm, Glory Hammer, other big power metal bands, is that if you have that aesthetic of being kind of jokey and personable and charismatic, but also like heavy, you know, is you can make a t-shirt with a bunch of like skulls and like a dude with an axe on it, and it says Lords of the Trident on the top. Yeah, and that that perfectly fits. Or you can make a pink t-shirt with a cartoon teddy bear riding a unicorn that's impaling like a little cartoon skull that says Lords of the Trident. And that works too. And and that, by the way, that t-shirt is our number one biggest seller of all time. (laughs) So, I mean, like the way that it's evolved over the years is it's been, I think as we've grown as a band and as we've gotten a lot more well-known, it can be interesting navigating the higher tiers of the music industry where people either get it or they don't or they like it or they don't so like there's a lot of we could just call them general gatekeepers right label people or booking agents or whatever that see maybe the humor aspect of what we do as as maybe somewhat of a turnoff or maybe like these guys aren't serious about their craft or whatever And sometimes it's taken a little bit of extra doing to win these people over. You know, usually once we can get on stage and get in front of them and they see us, they're like, oh, well, what was I worried about? But I think that initially has been interesting. So there's like a negative to it. But the positive side of it is that since innately this whole jokey tongue-in-cheek thing allows a band to seem more personable, to seem more like down to earth. We have some amazing, amazing relationships with like our super fans and people who are like on our Discord all the time and, and interacting with other fans. They really feel connected. They really feel like part of the community. And they don't feel weird about like reaching out and talking directly to us and involving us in things. And so that connection with the fan base has been a huge, huge boon of being jokey, personable charismatic kind of that archetype rather than being like a very standoffish or very like you know oh no one talks to them but their manager you want to talk to ty no one talks to ty you know like that it's like there's a lot of bands that are that type and that makes it difficult when you get to a certain time in your career to make those human connections that could really open doors for you. Right. Well, I mean, if you don't mind me saying so, you might say this is an accurate assessment. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys are just a little weird, (laughs) right? In terms of like bands, you're not like a normal, (laughs) you're definitely weirder than like a Death Cab or a Coldplay is what I'm trying to get at, right? But the landscape that we're living in technology-wise, media-wise, is what I think is allowing a weird band to actually flourish. I'm not sure Lords of the Trident would have worked in the early 2000s, 90s, 80s. I mean, Manowar existed, but like still, I'm fuzzy on the story of Manowar, but like I imagine it wasn't as grassroots as you guys are. (laughs) 
No, no. They definitely had their start in the 80s, and they definitely, you know, had their start in loincloths. <laughs> From day one, it was like fur everywhere. I guess I bring this up because for artists out there who are maybe a little bit discouraged thinking like, oh, well, you know, I'm not mainstream enough or I'm like too unique in X, Y or Z way. I think you guys are a great testament to like a lot of that doesn't matter. Like, yeah, if you're making bad music, people aren't going to like you. But in terms of like having a viable career, it almost doesn't matter if you're a little bit unique and weird and niche. Absolutely. I mean, a great, an absolutely great example of that besides us is the band Psychostick, who we are like really close friends with. And if you don't know, Psychostick is, they're a comedy death metal band. So they are even more over the top in terms of, they're straight up writing like Weird Al parody joke song stuff in death metal but they are insanely popular during the pandemic we actually pulled like a lot of ideas for our live streams from them because we're all close friends and they're like yes yeah rip us off you know and and do whatever you want to do (laughs) but their live streams they do a live stream every single thursday and i have not seen i've not seen them make less than like three grand what per live stream ever who is this psycho stick p-s-y-c-h-o stick Every time they've done a live stream, I don't think I've seen them make under three grand a live stream. And half goes to charity. So like last year in 2020, they donated something insane to charity. I think they donated like, you know, 60 something thousand, 70, 80, maybe $100,000. I can't remember. But it was a huge amount that went to charity. And so we took that business model too. And now all of our live streams, we do 50% to charity. And we've so far, we've given over 10 grand to charity uh, just from our live streams too. So it's been, it's, you know, and we, don't, we do not live stream as much as they do, but they kill it. And we're actually going to be on their live stream in September. So, But they are like, they're a niche of a niche, right? I mean, like comedy, death metal. You've got to be into death metal. You've got to be into comedy. You've got to be okay with being into both. <laughs> you know, like that is seemingly such a small group. But they, they absolutely are doing this for a full-time job. Absolutely. And the cool thing about the collapse of the record industry, I mean, a lot of people talk doom and gloom about it, but the nice thing about the, technolo- the, the world that we're living in right now and the technology that we have and the fact that there are you know, not as many gatekeepers to actually getting your music out there and, and forming a community is that, yeah, artists might not be making three, four, five, ten million million a year, but there are an increasingly big number of middle-class artists that you know are basically paying their mortgage and eating like normal people you know and going out to the bar every once in a while with friends for a drink just off of their own creativity so you may not have 50,000 people buying your t-shirts but if you have 5,000 people buying your t-shirts i mean that's enough for like at least one person to live off of basically <laughs> absolutely absolutely And this is something I teach in one of our free trainings that we have available on our website. If you want a link to that, we talk about how this is a whole new business model you should be embracing. Link in the show notes. We'll get back to our interview now. Just wanted to plug that real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go to DavidRyanOlsonNude.com. Make sure to get his ebook. Yep, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Get on my OnlyFans. (laughs) You got to get on that, man. You got to get on it right now. Anyway, but on this note, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you kind of steered the conversation in this direction because one of the things that you guys do great is that you have a number of different ways that you get directly supported from your fans. Would you just kind of give us an overview of what all those different means are? 
and then we'll dive into each specifically. Absolutely. The number one thing for us right now, and it has been for the past, I want to say like three, four years, probably four Man, has it, it might, might have even been five. I, 2020 is like, has it been a year? Was it a year? We don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was just a blip in space time. Maybe we'll count that as half a year. Half a year, right? Let's say four to five has been Patreon. We are currently the number one most supported independent metal band on Patreon. Congrats about that, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that's allowed us to do insanely risky things and insanely dumb things that that are like a twinkle in our eyes that were like, that would be so stupid if we did, but we would never have the money to actually do it. Like, for example, making a full tarot card deck, <laughs> a full Lords of the Trident tarot card deck with all of our faces on it. And actually, a lot of our Patreon backers' faces <laughs> are on this on this tarot card deck, we offered that as a, as a prize for people on the Patreon. So, like, stuff like that. No band in their right mind would ever go for this because it's way too expensive. But if you have a bunch of money coming in every month and you want to make something creative for your backers, you know, th- there you go. So, Patreon has been our, our, the most successful thing that we've done, at least in terms of crowdfunding. We've also been doing Kickstarter for a long time for our last, you know, for pretty much every album we've put out since album number yeah, three. So for the last seven albums, we've done, you know, Kickstarters and stuff like that. And yeah, so uh, besides that, like most artists out there, we do online distribution to streaming companies and to, you know, Spotify and your iTunes and your Amazon. We do all that through TuneCore. Some people do CD Baby. I got in with TuneCore and I really like the analytics uh, of TuneCore. So I could just kind of stay it in there. And then other than that, another big chunk of our income comes from our merch. Uh, we do, we've got an online store and it's rather popular and we offer all sorts of like weird stuff like tarot cards and, and votive candles and, and, and shirts, more shirts than you can even shake a shirt stick at. I don't know what that is, but whatever it is. Because of our Patreon, we make three t-shirts per year, one of which we sell. We also keep pretty close track of sales per show and sales online. We're very, like, like I said, we're super nerds. We have spreadsheets and like SQL databases up the wazoo where we calculate like, you know, percentage chance of a person buying a shirt based on the city that they live in kind of stuff. Like we go deep into the analytics. And so we swap out our shirts all the time. Whenever we're on the road, we usually have eight shirts and they'll usually swap out like twice a year, at least a couple of them based on the analytics that we pull. So, you know, merch, streaming, Kickstarter, Patreon, especially Patreon's the biggest one right now. Also, sometimes we make like a hundred bucks at a show, maybe, (laughs) (laughs) you know, some guy with a gold chain is like, Hey, you kids were real good tonight. Here's a hundred bucks. Don't spend it all in one place. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah. Can you share just kind of percentage wise, roughly, like what is your breakdown in terms of streaming sales shows and then the more direct fan supported Patreon kickstart donation, that type of thing? Right, right, right. So Patreon, in terms of like if we want to break it down into like a monthly income, let's say we have a really busy month and we're playing like eight or nine shows, super busy month at a show, 95% of our income comes from the merch booth. When we're on tour and we're like planning out the tour and we're guesstimating, you know, how much we're going to get paid and and how much it's going to be from X to Z and gas money, we no longer even calculate like how much we're going to make at the door or if we have a guarantee. We don't even really throw that into the guesstimation anymore. We always look at merch sale numbers because the merch sale numbers vastly outweigh 
the amount of money that we get on ticket sales. You know, like we had a show where we made $100 at the door and we made $1,300 at our merch booth. So it's, it's, it's just not even a contest sometimes. In terms of monthly income, if we're playing like a standard kind of show circuit, let's say, we, let's say we do three or four shows, right, that month. We're having kind of a chill month. I would say Patreon probably is going to be upwards of 70% of our income for the month. We make about, I want to say we make about, you know, 200, 250 to 300 bucks per month on like streaming and digital sales. We usually make about 150 to 200 bucks on like YouTube ad revenue per month. And, you know, shows, I mean, they could be great. They could be terrible. It's, it's kind of all over the place. If we do really well, we'll have a $1,300 night at the merch booth. Average night at the merch booth is usually like five to 600 bucks. And then, you know, whatever we get at the door is kind of cherry on top stuff. But all of that is like, I don't know, like 25, 20 to 25% of like our monthly income. The Patreon is the rest of it. So Patreon has been huge for us. Well, I think it's great because you have built a brand and you've built a loyalty with your audience where that's not a hard ask is to have them support you on Patreon. I'd love to get into more of the nitty gritty of Patreon in a little bit, but let's just kind of continue cruise on with the overview. What do you reserve your Kickstarter or Indiegogo's or, or whatever for? Is that more for specific projects like albums or? Yeah, yeah. So the income from Kickstarters and stuff like that goes directly towards funding the cost of like the project. So like creating the CD pressing the vinyl, paying the artists, making the hoodies with the crazy holographic inserts on the inside or whatever, you know, whatever crazy stupid stuff we're doing this month. All of the the Kickstarter stuff goes towards that. One of the rules that I kind of set up since day one is that we never run a Kickstarter until like the album is complete or almost complete. I've been involved in too many Kickstarters and actually personally involved in one Kickstarter once with a project out of LA that I was once in where we ran a Kickstarter and like two years later, the album came out and everybody was like, where is my stuff? And so we always run a, a Kickstarter campaign when the album is near completion. And we only you know run the Kickstarter campaign for like crafting the merch or whatnot. What I will say is that we haven't run a Kickstarter campaign in, I want to say like three years since the last album came out because our income has shifted so much in terms of how much we're making on Patreon then versus now. It's vastly different. So this album cycle uh, of the album that we just finished, we have a completely different approach for this album in terms of the release, in terms of the prizes, and all that sort of stuff. And it's actually a release strategy that I don't think anybody's done before. It's going to be unique in a number of ways, and I don't think anyone's tried this yet. So I will have to apologize for being like overly vague. <laughs> Because I don't want to give this away because I think no one's done this yet. And I want to try this and see how it works. And you know, come back on the podcast afterwards and I'll be like, it was a horrible failure. Oh God, why didn't I do it? But but we are gonna be we are gonna be running a, a Kickstarter for certain things related to this album, but not other things. And that's about as hand wavy as I can go. Man, I'm intrigued now. I want to know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be cool. If this gets you even more intrigued, I've been talking to a a publicist who works with a bunch of big power metal labels, and we talked over the plan, and he goes, huh, you know, I bet I could get you an article in four. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah, I was like, pardon me? You know, like, where? 
<laughs> When's the album come out? I got to remember to hit you up again. <laughs> See, that's the thing. We don't ever release it yet. Okay, okay. That might be on purpose. It might not. I'm throwing curveballs everywhere. You don't know what I'm doing. Whoa. You're holding the album for ransom. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. That would be fun. Your barbarian roots. You're trying to, you know, extort your fans. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Give me your gold or the album gets it. I've got my finger on the delete key. <laughs> I'll do it. I swear to God. <laughs> but yeah, why don't you share uh, some of your stories and lessons from when you were doing Kickstarters for albums more regularly? What are some of the things that you learned back in the day? For me, this is true whether it's Kickstarter or Patreon or any crowdfunding campaign. I am inherently pessimistic about crowdfunding. It's not that I don't believe in it, and it's not that I don't think it'll work. It's just that from my perspective, and I think a lot of artists take this perspective, from my perspective, I'm just some dude sitting in his basement. Who the heck is going to want to give me 20 bucks for this this album that I just, you know, recorded on my thing over here? <laughs> I mean, really. And so when we started our first Kickstarter, it was actually not long after Kickstarter started as like a thing. I think we started a Kickstarter within the first maybe year of Kickstarter's existence. Maybe. It was, it was still pretty early on. It wasn't a household name kind of a thing. And I was interested about it. I was intrigued by the idea, but I was very pessimistic. And I started off by basically saying, like, nobody's going to want to do this. And I, I pitched it to the guys by going, like, look, we might have to throw in some of our own money. But, you know, I mean, if we make 500 bucks from people doing donations, it's better than $0 and blah, 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 blah. And so we did a Kickstarter campaign for the EP that we were coming out with. We did a Kickstarter campaign for $800, <laughs> which nowadays seems like that seems dumb. <laughs> Why would, you know, and I was telling the guys, I'm like, look, we're going to do this for 30 days. It's going to be tooth and nail. We're going to have to beg people. We might have to throw in some of our own money. Just trust me, I know what I'm doing. We can make this work. We can make this work. And I launched it, and I'm like, oh, boy, here we go, here we go, here we go. And it was funded in under 24 hours. I'm like, oh, no, oh, God. I was like, yay, boo, yay, oh, God, ah, you know. <laughs> so the lesson the lesson that I learned there, and I think I talked about this a little bit on the, on the little chat we had a couple days ago, is that I took Martin Atkins' advice. He told me, you know, 98% ah, of a good Kickstarter campaign is how you plan it. So if you spend, like, all of your time planning out, oh, there's these cool little, like, prizes that I'm going to give away, and, and, it, and it's cool when you launch it, then it'll be good, and it'll be fine. And so I spent, like, you know, weeks, weeks pouring over every little detail of this Kickstarter campaign. And then when it launched, it was good. But I came at it from a very pessimistic attitude. And so I added in some, like, stretch goals, you know? And, and one of the things that Martin said, and one of the things that I wanted to do, because I thought it'd be funny, is he's like, you should make a stretch goal that you know you're never going to hit, but it'll just be funny. You know, like, if we hit $10,000, I'll come over to the top donor's house dressed as a French maid, and I'll clean your toilet for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you could take pictures. It'll be fun. So we had a stretch goal. This is when we, we had $800 was our goal. I told the guys, I said, look, if we make, uh, if we make, uh, uh, oh, and actually, now that I think about it, it was $700. It wasn't $800. Because I said, if we make double this amount, which we're not going to do, but if we make double this amount, I will send everybody who pledges more than $10 a copy of our first album, right? So if we make $1,400, everybody gets the first album for free. 
And then I'm like, oh, we should make a funny goal that we're never going to hit. And I'm like, okay, if we hit three times the amount, <laughs> which we're not going to do, we're never going to, this is never going to happen. But if we hit $2,100, let's tell them that we're going to do like a, a sexy calendar. We'll do men of Lords of the Trident sexy calendar. And I told the guys over and over and over, this is not going to happen. This is never going to happen. It's just for laughs. We're not going to do this. And we ended up with $2,400 at the end of the day on our first Kickstarter. And so I had to come back to the guys and be like, so hey. Um, <laughs> so hey. And to this day, there is now an internal band rule of no more sexy calendars. And we made a sexy calendar. And it was it was sexy. Good. I'm glad that you kept your word. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, once I say something, I, I go through with it. Were you channeling your inner uh, George Costanza for the sexy calendar? <laughs> oh, there were definitely some uh, there were definitely some little spicy moments in there for sure, yeah. <laughs> but uh, for a lot of people, what that imbued from the, that first experience is like, I can do this. There's more people who are interested in this than I think. And there's a lot of people out there who, you know, are, are just friends and they're willing to toss 20 bucks at, you know, oh, Ty made a thing. Let, let's support him. You know, I might not like actually want this, but you know, hey, he's doing stuff. Let's let's make it happen for him. So what we did afterwards for the rest of the Kickstarters is we looked at our metrics, we looked at our reach, we looked at our generally interaction on social media and stuff like that. And we used like hard numbers to determine what a safe goal would be. Instead of being pessimistic or instead of being like overly optimistic, like we're gonna make ten thousand dollars in this next record, you know, like no. But we, we went and we actually looked at the hard numbers of like, okay, how many Facebook friends do we all have together? How many, you know, what's our like ratio? How many people do we have interacting with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch? Twitch wasn't a thing back then, but, you know, Twitter and all that sort of stuff. Sum all those numbers, take 20% of those numbers and times it by like 20 bucks. And that's our goal. And that worked really, really well. We hit our goal again. Like we jumped from $800 goal to 3000 for the next one. And we hit that, we doubled that, we hit 6,000. And then the next one we did, you know, we had even more reach and then we tried 6,000. And when we doubled that, we got 12, you know? So like we sort of built on, on the data and we set safe goals that we knew we were gonna hit because for people running Kickstarters, the most important thing is making that goal, right? If you hit a goal, you have two pieces of PR that you can, you can send out. The first piece of PR, you send us be like, whoa, new album. Here's the Kickstarter. The second piece of PR you send out is, we hit our goal. Oh my God, thank you guys so much, you know? But if you don't hit that goal, oh, you know, not only do you not look so great, but those Kickstarter campaigns, they last on the website forever, you know? So people can look up like that Lords of the Trident ran five unsuccessful Kickstarter campaigns. So, oh, well, why the heck am I going to pledge to the sixth one. Oh, did they get six times the charm? Like, no, you know. And actually, if I pledge to a Kickstarter, I go on the history and I look and I see how many times they've already tried this or they've tried previous things. So, you know, setting those setting those those goals that are reasonable and based on data instead of like feelings, I think was something that was a really important thing for us to to do and to to kind of get in the habit of doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So can you kind of then walk us through when the transition from doing Kickstarters to focusing more on Patreon happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, 
So early on in Patreon, in Patreon land, in Patreon history, we were also somewhat early adopters of Patreon. And as far as I know, we were one of the earlier bands on Patreon. When Patreon started, it was a, it was a lot more like YouTube creators and artists and things like that, people making, you know, drawings and stuff. And there wasn't a lot of like bands doing Patreon. And the thing that really made me interested in doing Patreon was there's an online comedy group called Mega64. And I have been a fan of these guys since before YouTube. That's how long they've been around. And I, I, I follow them religiously. They have like a weekly podcast that I listen to. I have a wall of posters right over here. And all of those posters are Mega64 posters from their Patreon. <laughs> so you might say I'm a bit of a super fan for Mega64. The thing that made me interested in trying Patreon is they came out with a Patreon and their pitch was really interesting. They had never done crowdfunding before, ever. And they said, hey, we're Mega64. We're opening up this Patreon. We're not going to do anything different. We're going to keep putting all of our stuff out on YouTube publicly for everybody to watch. We're not going to do any exclusive stuff here because that's not who we are and what we do. This is simply for, like, if you want to give us a tip, you know, if you want to, like, join the fan club, so to speak. And their whole thing was like, look, if, if we get more money, we can do more things and we can get things done faster. Some of the biggest bottlenecks that we have are financial. So if we lose those bottlenecks, we make more stuff. You get to see them. Everybody gets to see them. And they repeated this like five or six times in their video. They're like, you don't have to pledge. You'll be able to see everything we do. You absolutely do not have to pledge. This is totally optional. If you feel like giving us some money, this is a good way to do it. Please consider donating. And in one day, they had $10,000 a month. <laughs> yeah. So I saw that. And I'm like, aha, okay. And we kind of went towards that aesthetic too, where it's like, look, we're going to keep making songs. We're going to do some stuff here that's going to be exclusive to the Patreon. It'll be fun stuff. You know, it'll be behind the scenes stuff. If you want to see it, jump on. If not, that's cool. You can still listen to, you know, all the music will still be out there. And we'll have all of our YouTube stuff still out there too. But yeah, that was kind of our pitch. But we brought a little bit more of the Kickstarter mindset into it where we had physical prizes available that were, you know, yearly prizes. We did a lot of like behind the scenes stuff. And much like our first Kickstarter, we started out our Patreon campaign when we first started incredibly pessimistically. Our levels were like $1, $3, $5, $8, so like $10, $5, $8, $8, and $10. So like $10 a month was like our biggest tier. And I came, I came at it from like getting somebody to give us 20 bucks on Kickstarter is hard enough. Is somebody going to want to like pay us $10 a month? That's like a phone bill. It's like your Lords of the Trident monthly, but like, like really, nobody's going to want to do this. I think this is going to fail horribly. That's how I came at it. And I was very wrong. Very, very wrong. So we ran on this model for a while, this $1, $3, $5 low subscription cost. Can I ask real quick, when you started this, how many followers or streams and, and how big was your fan base at the time? Yeah, well, I'll pull up my spreadsheet and I'll let you know. How about that? <laughs> let me see. So this would have been, let's say, five years ago. Let's see. End of year reports. Here we are. In the year, bup, 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 let's say 2016. We had about 3,500 Facebook likes. We had about 4,100 YouTube views in the year. And we had about 500 YouTube subscribers back then. So not very big. Not very big. And, you know, we, we kind of started this up. And when we thought about it more, it was like, 
we might get you know an extra fifty bucks a month from like friends or we had we had a couple super fans. We had at least one guy with a tattoo. So we're like, well, that guy. Another reason that we started up Patreon was that we had a super fan. His name's Doug. He lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Amazing guy. He would buy like eighty dollars worth of Lords of the Trident shirts and CDs every month. And he would go down to his local record store and hand them out to people who were just looking in the metal section. <laughs> this guy is like the patron saint of Lords of the Trident, basically. Absolutely nuts. And so when we were about to start this Patreon campaign, I called him up and I'm like, hey, look, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate what you're doing. We're thinking about switching over to this model. Would that be better for you? Would that be easier? Would that be something that you would, you know, instead of doing all this all the time? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'd do that. I'd do that. And so, yeah, so that, that was a big thing where we saw people, like we saw repeat business and we saw people wanting to kind of do this sort of, a, I have a cat cat on me here, wanting to do this, this sort of subscription model kind of a thing. So we started off thinking, okay, if we make an extra 20 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or heck, maybe even 75, who knows, that'll be money for the gas tank. That'll be one of the shows where we don't have to worry too much about how much we make at the merch booth in terms of getting home. And what it ended up being, like the Kickstarter campaigns, we, we planned the heck out of it. And by we, I mean mostly me. <laughs> Plan, just planned the heck out of it. And it was so attractive to our fans that a lot of people jumped on. And within the first couple months, you know, we had smashed that initial idea of like, maybe we'll make 50 bucks, you know, to where it was like, oh, wow, we're making $200. Wow. And what happened from that is, you know, the money would come in at the end of the month. And I'd get this thing, you know, I'd get this like, oh, you, you have $200. And I'd go, oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> I haven't done anything for these people. I got to do something. I got to do something. You know, and it was like 15, 20 people. But I was, I was sitting here going like, I got to make something for these people. Like, they're, they're going to stop supporting me if I don't do something right now. So I'd get all guilty. And I'd like make something or I'd make a new YouTube something or you know I'd make I make a new YouTube series because I'm like oh uh 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 beer review show there we go that'll do it <laughs> and then the the problem and it's a good problem that happened was that attracted more people. I started making stuff because I felt guilty and then that stuff started attracting more people to the Patreon and then next month I felt even guiltier and I'm like oh no now I really have to make more stuff and it got to a point where, you know, we started off the Patreon kind of small, but we had we had some pretty interesting, decent prizes. We had exclusive shirts that you could only get through the Patreon and you get them for free. We had all these different, like, cool little exclusive kind of fan club-esque sort of things. And that attracted people. That and some of the, the, the different um, events we did, like we did, you know, Patreon-only live streams where we would do basically like a three-hour concert. You call out what you want to hear. The first... Three of them were like down here in my basement and we had, you know, 30, 40, and then 70 people down in the bit, much to the chagrin of my wife. Yeah, it was um, <laughs> quite, quite a time. But, you know, that attracted people and then it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing when people saw what we were doing and everything we put out was like, oh, uh, this is on the Patreon. If you want to see it, just, it's a dollar, just jump on. It's a buck or five bucks, you know, whatever. And then people would go and they'd join and then I would feel guiltier and guiltier and guiltier. And now we have this giant, you know, behemoth of a Patreon campaign where I'm doing all this crazy extra stuff behind the scenes and extra YouTube series and, and all sorts of crazy stuff, streams and stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been really great. It was, you know, kind of humble beginnings and small intentions that turned into this giant, massive 
almost conglomerate of a thing. <laughs> but still, it's pretty amazing to me that pretty soon after launching it, you said you were making a few hundred bucks a month off of it, despite not having a huge following. One of the biggest objections I hear from artists is, I don't have a big enough audience for that to actually make sense. Like, Patreon might make sense if I have a ton more fo- Like, say I have a million followers on, on YouTube or whatever. Then it would make sense, but it sounds like it worked pretty good for you or even pretty early on yeah so i i talk about building a patreon and, and starting from ground zero and how to how to build one as, as a young band as a diy band I, I i talk about this at music conferences often and the first thing that i say is and this is kind of how we approach it i'm like okay everybody raise your hand if you could use an extra thousand dollars a month right and everybody raises their hand and i say okay keep your hand raised if instead of $1,000, you could use an extra 500 bucks a month and everybody keeps their hands raised. I'm like, how about an extra $100 a month? How about an extra $50 a month? How about an extra $5 a month? And I mean, like, everybody should have their hand raised. <laughs> there is not a single band out there <laughs> who couldn't do something with even five bucks. And the thing is, is yeah, you might not have... 3,000 fans like we did on Facebook or what, you know, whatever metric that is when we started out. But even if you're making 20 bucks or 30 bucks or 50 bucks a month, that's 20 bucks or 30 bucks or 50 bucks that you wouldn't have if you didn't do this. You know, it doesn't cost you anything to start up a Patreon and it doesn't have a time limit. Like a lot of people are in that Kickstarter mentality of like, oh, I, it's, I do this for 30 days and it's done. Like Patreon exists basically until you shut it down. It'll exist forever. And you can grow with the Patreon. You can change the Patreon as you grow. You can add more things. You can delete old things. You can constantly keep it updated and fresh and attract new people to it. And for some artists out there, yeah, you might have, you know, six months where you're sitting at 50 bucks a month and nothing happens. And a lot of people would get discouraged by that. But it's like, dude, that's 50 bucks. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that would be a win for me. If somebody gives me a dollar, I'm like, ha, 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 I'm going to go get a quarter of an energy drink now. <laughs> yeah. Well, like 50 bucks a month, that's like, you know, getting to go out one more night a month with your friends or, or whatever, going to dinner, going to a bar, whatever. And Patreon doesn't cost anything. Yeah, or at the very least, just like that'll cover your bar tab for the next time you're playing at, you know, Joe Schmo's terrible shack in the middle of Tennessee. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the other objections that I hear from artists that is resistance to starting a Patreon or crowdfunding or something is like, well, I don't know what rewards I would give to my fans because it's like I don't have money or bandwidth to figure out how to make something unique or creative or something that involves capital. What would you say to that? I think this speaks directly to every year because I, I have the same sort of fears that like maybe we're not giving enough to the people who are giving us all this money per month. I mean, we have we have a couple of super fans on there that are giving us 60 bucks a month. Like, our top tier right now is 15. And they're like, nope, 60. <laughs> I'm like, huh, <laughs> Jesus. But I fear sometimes that, like, we're not producing enough for those people or for just everybody who's pledging to us in general. So we do, uh, much like the IT nerds we are, we, we do a yearly survey and we ask a bunch of very targeted questions. And one of the questions that we ask every year is like, look, if we took away all the prizes, the t-shirts, the behind the scenes stuff, the, you know, everything, if we took away everything, and this was basically just a tip jar, a fan club, you know, that maybe we do a couple updates a year, would you quit? Would you reduce your pledge? Would you still pledge at what you're pledging? You know, all that sort of stuff. And every single year, it's never gone below 70% where people say, 
I would continue to pledge exactly what I'm pledging, even if you did no updates at all. And I don't believe that <laughs> because I'm a pessimistic guy. But I think what that shows me, that says loud and clear that a lot of people, and, and the, the follow-up question, of course, is, you know, why did you pledge to the Patreon? A lot of people are pledging to this Patreon because they like what we do. They want to see us succeed. They want to feel like they are a part of the engine that is driving this band to bigger and better things. And so they're not necessarily in it for the t-shirts or the behind the scenes updates or the MP3s or whatever. They just love what we do and they want to give back. They want us to succeed. They want to feel like they're part of that. I think everybody out there has a band or a song even that's affected them very deeply, very emotionally in some sort of a way. And you feel like you're stealing from the artist because you paid 99 cents for that single. And it, in some cases, it, it changes lives. Or in some cases, it can save a life. And there are people out there, even if you're a small band, there are or there may be or there will be eventually people out there who will have those emotional experiences based on the art that you've created. And they will feel like they want to give back to you. And you should allow them to do that. You shouldn't say, no, 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 no. It wasn't anything. When in actuality, it meant a great deal to them. You know, you shouldn't downplay their experience. So, you know, A, you don't necessarily have to produce anything. Bill Wirtz is a really interesting YouTube creator who has a, a Patreon that's completely blank and has been blank for six years. He hasn't done anything. But he still makes at least $230 a month. Because, you know, you can pledge a dollar, but he probably has a lot of people pledging way more. What I tell bands is, you know, look, if you want to feel like you're running this and you're getting people involved and that you're giving back for the amount of money that you're getting, just do one, like, text update a month and one picture or video update a month. And it's as easy as, like, taking out your phone, putting the selfie mode on and hitting the record button on your video and being like, hey, guys, what's up? I just wanted to show you this quesadilla that I just ate. It's awesome. <laughs> It doesn't have to be anything, you know, groundbreaking. You don't have to like show them the the meaning of life or whatever. But a lot of people just want that feeling of connection with the artists that they love. And that that takes like honestly, that takes like 5 minutes. You know, just like, "Hey, I just built this virtual pinball cabinet. Check it out. I'm going to play some Jurassic Park pinball right now. I'm going to show you, you know." I mean, it's so simple, but it's it's something that you can do. The Patreons that I feel that I take away my pledge from are the Patreons that sit and languish for months with no updates. And I only take away my pledge if it's sort of like, a, oh, it's a friend of mine. I'll just like, yeah, 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 you know, whatever. If it was like, you know, somebody that I felt a, a very deep emotional connection to, I'd probably still support them. But there's one band in Italy who we actually played with on our last European tour. I helped set up their Patreon with them. And they give too much. I get like, I want to say like three updates a week from them where they do full like video rundowns of like, uh, hello, this is uh, my favorite uh, Dio records uh, ranked from uh, five to one. <laughs> Uh, let me tell you why. And not only that, this is this is the crazy part. They do those videos in English and Italian. They do two sets. I get I get both sets. <laughs> I struggle to make content in just English. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, I'm paying them five bucks a month, and I'm like, oh god, I should pay them more. Oh my god, you know. <laughs> but you know, it's not hard. You don't have to give everybody the moon and the stars. You don't have to be the lords of the trident Patreon when you start, because we certainly were not in the state that we're in when we started our Patreon. As your Patreon grows, as you get bigger and better and you get more and more fans, you can offer more. You can take away things that weren't working. Great example, pulling back the whole Mega64 thing. I really wanted to do a video podcast 
we call it a trident cast. You know, we get the guys on the couch and we just sit and we, you know, hang and, and talk about, you know, our favorite pizza topics or whatever. I don't know, you know, whatever people do on podcasts. And the guy said, you know, look, nobody's ever going to want to watch that. It's never going to work. Like, who wants to hear us talk about our favorite movies? That's dumb. I don't think, I don't think anybody's, you know, they're coming from this me, me perspective of like, I'm just a person, nobody cares, which I totally get. And so what, what we did is we said, okay, look, how about this? We'll make it a stretch goal. If we make 250 bucks a month on the Patreon, we'll start doing Trident Cast as a reward, a monthly reward for people. And they get to see it first, and then we'll release it like a week later for everybody else. And the guys are like, oh, yeah, right, <laughs> $250 a month. <laughs> Good one, Ty. We're never going to make 250 bucks a month. That's crazy talk. And then when we hit that, I'm like, oh, no, I feel as though we must deliver this reward. I, 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 <laughs> I hate to tell you, fellas, but we're going to have to do it. We promised. You know, where secretly I was like, <laughs> the plan worked perfectly. <laughs> so that, that sort of thing. People can think pie in the sky. You know, think, okay, in three years, I'm going to be making $10,000 a month, and I'm going to be blah, 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 and set that up as a stretch goal. You know, like, okay, uh, our, our stretch goal is 250 bucks a month. We're going to do a, a Trident cast. And then at $500 a month, we're going to do this. And then at $2,000 a month, we're going to do this. And you know, X, Y, Z. And once you hit those, you grow. And if you don't hit them, you can delete them. You can retool them. You can do 600 bucks a month instead of $500 a month. You know, the great thing about the Patreon platform is that you can change it at any time. And as long as you're transparent with your backers, as long as you tell them like what you're thinking and what you're doing and why you're doing these things, everybody will be on board because the people who pledge to you, the people on your Patreon are your biggest fans. And they're the most important fans because they are actively, financially supporting you. That is worth 500 hits of the like button on your Facebook page, probably even more, because these are the people that are giving you, like, actively giving you money. Like, that's crazy. The, these are the people that you have to hold on to with all your might. So you let them know everything. Like, you tell them, like, hey, uh, look, the whole... Come over to your house in a French maid outfit, you know, once a year. That was not working out. So we're going to delete that reward. <laughs> we're going to change it with a sexy gimp outfit. That's way more user-friendly. <laughs> you kind of hinted at something, though. The act of giving someone money causes them to feel way more invested in you. And then they are way more likely to actually go out and be your advocate. Even if they were kind of on the fence before, but I gave them a little bit of money. And now you feel way more invested in them. Yeah, the thing that I get pushed back a lot on, especially from other people who are like knee deep in Patreon, there's this war over the $1 tier. And this speaks to exactly what you were just talking about. A lot of Patreon creators say, $1 tier, worthless. Don't even, make it a $2 tier. Why? Well, because when the fees are calculated and when Patreon takes their cut, it's actually more like for $1 you get like like 55 cents, but if you make it $2, you get like $1.70, which is closer to the actual value. And that's people thinking with money. I say, you need to make a $1 tier. Everybody needs to make a $1 tier on their Patreon, specifically because of what you just pointed out. When you pay for something, when you are giving even a dollar a month, which is like, let's be completely real. For most people, it is an incredibly insignificant amount of money, a dollar a month. You are 10 times, 100 times more likely to open an email that comes into your inbox with our name on it when you're giving us money. And if nothing else, that $1 tier is there for people to connect with that idea, right? 
most people would say, you know, okay, for my email list, I send out an email blast to like 2,000 people. I have a 35% open rate, and that's really good. And to me, I'm like, 35? 35%. I've got 2,000 people, and only 35% of them are opening my email? (laughs) What is that? But I will tell you what, when I send out a Patreon update, like 90, 95% of people open that because they're paying for that. So if I wanted to get people super excited about something coming up, yeah, I'd, I'd send it out to the email list. But I know for a fact that the first people to act on that piece of information is going to be the people on our Patreon. When we opened up our ticketing for Mad with Power Fest this year, the festival that we run, we opened it to Patreon backers only for the first two weeks. And the second that ticketing opened, they crashed the site. There were so many people that got that email and clicked on the link all at once that the site went down for two hours. (laughs) We had a denial of service attack from our own fans. (laughs) It was wild. I'd never seen anything like it. So that's the power of that $1 tier. It's like, yeah, people are going to open that email. So the other thing that's like super cool about just getting people on the $1 tier is it's total foot in the door because then it's super easy to get them to bump up to whatever tier after that. Because even if they just do, oh, I'll just do one, it's easy. But then like for some reason you announce some sort of, oh, for our $5 tiers, it's one button to upgrade instead of like, oh, I mean, yeah, I could give them 10 bucks a month. But then I have to like sign up with my credit card and like, yeah, it's like, nope, it's just boom. You've already got your info in there. Yep. And that's exactly it. Every time, every time we come up with a new t-shirt, I'll send the information out to the people who are on the tiers that get the t-shirt. I'm like, yo, hit this button to sign up and fill out the form and we'll send you your t-shirt. And then I send out a separate email to all the other tiers like, hey, we just dropped this really sweet t-shirt and it's at the $8 tier. And I know you're not there. And I know that I normally say that you have to be on the tier for at least a couple months. But I'll tell you what, just this once, if you jump up before this date, I'll send you a t-shirt. And yeah, that's it's a lie every time. Like anybody who's on that eight dollar tier, <laughs> but it works. It works so well. It works so well. <laughs> it's like you go to the websites and they say for the next two hours. When really, it's just like you know for the next in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know a lot of people. You say just give them like updates on status, uh, what you're doing, what you're eating, where you're at. <laughs> The objections to doing that on Patreon is to say, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing like on Instagram and social media and and Snapchat and all of that? What would you say in terms of contrasting what's your public feed versus your Patreon feed? Yeah, I mean, the easy way to do that is, is public versus real. We craft an image of ourselves either personally or as a band and brand online that is not reality. People see us on stage, you know, in front of a big crowd but they don't see the gas station sushi that we ate earlier and like we really have to use the bathroom <laughs> and we're sl- like gritting our teeth smiling for this picture and, and we're going to be running for that green room bathroom very soon. You know, it, it's the thing that you can offer to the people on the Patreon is the actual story behind the niceties of social media. And it's that sort of insider scoop that I think people really find interesting and really cling to because, you know, these people are already super fans. They already know your catalog inside and out. Or, you know, if, if they don't now, they probably will in the future. If they were one of the very few people who knew the actual story behind this thing or the, or the other thing, that is intrinsically valuable to people who are fans of, you, of yours. That's something that they can bring up in conversation with other fans 
and be like, well, actually, you know, and, and, be, and look like the smart guy in the room or the, or the annoying guy in the room, one of the two. But what I try to do for Patreon is I try to give more of what actually happened, more of the band's perspective than the nice perspective that you put online. You know, like um, after shows, you'll always see bands be like, hey, big thanks to the Riverside Theater for having us and, you know, and uh, uh, Molly's Addiction and, and blah, 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 blah. These, these bands are great. You should go check them out. And what I'll do on, on Patreon is I'll be like, okay, guys, so, so here's the story. You know, like we played last night at the Riverside. All of their toilets were not working. <laughs> None of them. There was a bucket in the corner, and we didn't, you know, we ended up just going down the road to a, a BP gas station. It was really weird. I don't know if they had a plumbing problem. Anyway, Molly's Addiction, the, the opening band, ended up drinking too much after a set, and they puked in one of the non working toilets. And then the manager yelled at them for like five and a half minutes, like at the top of his lungs, so loud that he actually lost his voice. And at the end of the night, when he was paying us, he was basically like raspy. And he's like, hey, oh, here's $500, hey. Welcome to Life on the Road. More updates for you at our next stop on tour. That kind of hilarious, you know, behind the scenes or, or, or fun or tragic or, you know, that kind of thing is something that you can do on Patreon because it's paywalled off. You know, you can you can be a little bit more, you can be a little bit more real and authentic. You can say actual opinions on Patreon without really having to worry about getting into too much trouble, generally. Because people have to pay money to see that. And it's been my experience, and you know, this is just one, one band and one Patreon campaign. It's a big one, but it's just one. That when we've told our fans, like, hey, here is an early leak of this video. Please don't post it anywhere. This is coming out in five days, but we wanted you to see it first. You know, just don't post it before it drops. Please, please, please. We've never had that happen, ever. You know, so I think a lot of the people that are in that sort of unspoken contract are willing to kind of keep those general secrets if you're more honest with them. So, you know, save the nice posts and the cool looking pictures for Instagram and Facebook and save the reality for, for Patreon. <laughs> you know, you can put in some nice pictures too, but you know, also give them the, the actual scoop. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You did something semi-recently. I'm going from memory here. So correct me if I'm wrong is you raised your prices on Patreon can you tell us more about what led to that? That was actually, it wasn't super recent. It was a couple years ago, but it was, in my mind, it still feels recent because it was it was scary. It was a real moment, I think, for us as a band and as a Patreon campaign. What happened was, once the Patreon kind of took off and we were doing pretty well and we were making, I, it was probably around the time that we were making like five, six hundred bucks a month, maybe more, I started really kind of geeking out on the marketing side of things. I got into a bunch of like the Patreon user groups and I, you know, I just kind of started looking at data and thinking about how I can adjust things to, to be more successful. And one of the really great opportunities that I had, which I know not a lot of people have access to this, is I have a day job where I work for the Center for Healthy Minds here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We study mindfulness meditation. So we take Buddhist monks, we stick them in MRI scanners, and we tell them to meditate. And then we watch how their brain changes as they meditate. And one of the cool things that we've got in-house is we've got like an in-house donor relations team. You know, because we raise a lot of money just doing this research as an educational institution. We're funded mostly by donors that donate to the university, specifically for us. And we have this incredible team run by this incredible woman who's been doing, you know, direct donor support and fundraising for, you know, 20-ish 
maybe 25 years. And I started to think, man, that's a lot like what we're doing, basically. We're kind of like a heavy metal PBS. You know, you'll get this tote bag, you know? <laughs> so I, I bought her lunch and I said, you know, hey, what, could you look over our campaign? Here's our metrics. Here's all the spreadsheet data. Tell me what I could do better. And so she took a couple hours and she went through the whole thing with a fine tooth comb. And she goes, I really don't have any feedback for you. This is a really successful campaign. This is really well run. You've really thought a lot about this. You put a lot into it. And then she goes, you are charging way too little. I said, what? She's like, look at what you're giving these people for $3 a month. They get like 17 things for $3 a month. You're giving them physical copies of your albums for $3 a month. You should charge more. And I was like, well, I... I don't know. And she's like, no, no, trust me. If these people are as invested as this data says that they are, you can charge more and you'll be perfectly fine. She's like, look, this one guy is giving you 60 bucks a month. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know, I know. But it said that one guy. She's like, no, you got to cater towards that one guy. You know, like, and so what, what we did is we, we hemmed and hawed about it for a, a number of uh, weeks. And I, you know, mildly increased the prices I did instead of like one, three, five, Seven ten or eight ten, we made one five eight ten fifteen was our new tiers, and we got rid of some prizes and we added some new ones in. And I wrote out this entire you know two page diatribe of like, okay, look, I know this seems like a money grab, <laughs> and I realize that you know you guys are already giving us so much, but like the prices of t-shirts have increased and the prices of shipping have gone through the roof and blah 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 blah. And like we basically are breaking even to give you these prizes, we're breaking even like four out of the twelve months. And we're trying to do this. We're trying to go to Europe. We're trying this is a couple of years ago. You know, we're trying to do this and this and this and this. And so I told him, I said, look, if you don't want to increase your pledge, don't. And I will honor your pledge level that you are pledging at right now for the next year, for an entire year, if you don't want to increase your pledge. But this is what we're moving to, and we hope you guys would move with us or whatever. And I was expecting a ton of drop. I was expecting maybe we keep 60% of our patrons and the rest of them drop. Again, pessimistic mode, right? What ended up happening is 100% moved over to the new levels. And I got five or six like private messages that said, thank you so much for increasing your pledge levels. I felt terrible. I felt like I wasn't giving you enough money. <laughs> you guys do so much. This was the right move. You know, like... Uh, unprompted, five or six people were like, yeah, I wanted to give you more money. I'm glad you did this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right. So the lesson from that is what I was saying earlier. If you change things, if you move things, if you delete or add things on your Patreon, the only thing that you have to do is be 100% transparent. Because again, these are the people that are directly funding you. These are your team. These are your super fans. These are the people who will get a Lords of the Trident tattoo across their chest and make you feel weird. <laughs> like, give me a hug. Oh, cool. It's my logo right in my face on you forever. <laughs> All right, neat. These are your people. These are your super fans. So as long as you include them in the process, they will go along with whatever you, you think is right. It's when you just make a change and you don't tell anybody about it. That's when people get pissed. People want to support you. You just got to be able to give them the opportunity to do it and not get so down on yourself and get so low self-esteem. I mean, low self-esteem, that's maybe why we became musicians in the first place, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially vocalists. Like, let me tell you. <laughs> All those kids that, that tease me in middle school, well, guess what? Now I'm a singer, and now I need that attention because otherwise I'll feel terrible. 
<laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's the whole, like, Amanda Palmer, like, being comfortable with asking. That is something that, it's true, it takes a while to get over that idea of, like, it's okay for me to put out my hand and say, you know, if you feel comfortable giving me money, please do. That takes a huge step for a lot of people. It's not a comfortable thing for a lot of people. Even for seasoned askers, you know, like Amanda Palmer. I mean, I'm sure it still feels weird to some extent to basically put a hat down and, you know, say, throw money into it. But I mean, like, if that's the way that people want to support you, you got to let them. I always feel silly when people come up with these excuses for not starting a Patreon or not doing a Kickstarter campaign or not accepting money for this or that or the other thing. And it's like, you're only devaluing yourself. People actively want to give you money, not because they feel guilty. It's because they like you and they want you to succeed. So like, why would you stop them from doing that? Yeah, well, it, it seems like, I think maybe it's because, you know, we are musicians and we hang out with a bunch of other musicians. We just view us as, you know, mere mortals. I mean, obviously not. You like Fang von Wolfenstern. <laughs> Oh, A plus, A plus. <laughs> Fang von Wolfenstein, yeah, Wolfenstein 3D. You can play me on DOS. You know, I'm I'm, I'm compatible with DOS. You know. <laughs> Crap! What was I saying? <laughs> we're mere mortals, but I'm not. That's what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's like we're musicians. We hang out with musicians. We're kind of numb to the fact that, like, because a fan isn't a musician in the same sense that you are, the curtain hasn't been drawn back. And so there's still kind of that magic that goes on there that like you can only get as a fan. The way that I describe this sort of awakening to that idea to other musicians, because I, I still have trouble making that connection because we're so knee deep in our own world. We have a, a viewpoint and it's hard for us to get around that. But the way that I put this, which I, th I think is really useful, is like think of somebody who sculpts marble. You've seen like these crazy marble sculptures that look like real life and have these like, you know, amazing features. And when I see something like that, I go, how in the shit did that, how? I don't, like, my brain can't even start to begin to think of how they did that. I do not possess even like a 164th of the skill to even start to begin to think about being a marble sculptor. But... If you surround yourself with no one else but marble sculptors, everybody's going to be like, mm, I don't know, the, the fingers are a little long, don't you think? <laughs> you know, they're a little lanky on that sculpture. I mean, like, it could be a little bit better. I, I, can, I can see the pores, but the pores don't look as lifelike as they could. So to a lot of people who are non-musical, the things that we do are like that marble sculptor where they're like, I don't, how? How did, how did you bend space-time to make me cry when I'm thinking about the death of a dragon in your lyrics. <laughs> Why did you do that? Why did you make me feel feelings? I was not ready for this. And we lose, I, I've lost that. I've lost that ability to think in that way because anytime I think music, I'm thinking analytically. I'm like, oh, they're using this chord. They're using this motif. The interesting tone here, but you know, I like this kind of bass tone better. I don't think in that new brain, in that new baby brain sort of way. You know, so yeah, I, I, it's perspective taking, I think is really important in a lot of different ways as a musician. All right. So let's say there's a band listening or an artist listening today that says, okay, I need to start exploring this Patreon thing. What would you direct them to just right off the bat to kind of hit the ground running? Go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of the Trident, and just like copy anything that you, that works for you, like straight up, like steal it. You have my permission. Just take what we do 
and copy it 100%. Because that's how I've learned. You know, that's how I did things. And I'm pretty sure that most bands would, would say the exact same thing. If it's working for us, it might work for you, depending on what kind of band you are and depending on what your, your voice is, you know? Not everything that we do is going to work for you. Not everything that you do would work for us. But if you want to start Patreon, the best thing that you can do is start looking at other Patreon pages and seeing what they offer. If you're a band, you might as well start with us and just kind of go from there. And if you want, if you, if you want to see what we're doing like internally, just toss in a buck. You can just stay for a month. You can go through the archives, whatever. doesn't matter. But just, just see what we're doing and copy it. Like I said earlier, like I alluded to, you know, Martin Atkins told me, and this is 100% true, whether it's Patreon or Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any crowdfunding campaign, the most important part of any crowdfunding campaign is the prep, right? So you have to spend at least, at least a couple weeks, a couple weeks prepping out your campaign, listing pros and cons, figuring out, you know, things that you want to do now, things you want to do in the future, things that you could do now, you know, but maybe you have obstacles or, or things that are easy for you to do now. Make a list of prizes that you can deliver currently, prizes you want to deliver in the future, and, and just ideas of where you want this Patreon to go. What could you do with $500 a month? What could you do with $1,000 a month? Make those stretch goals. It doesn't matter how you do it, but what matters is, is that you plan it out as in-depth as possible before you start it. Because what is it? Proper preparation precedes planning poorly, proprietary platypus. That's what it is. That's, that's the saying. So, you know, make sure to plan it all out and and just have a good plan, and then your campaign will be successful. Well, anyway, Ty, or Fang, I should say, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show today and just enlightening us on, on the process. It was real fun to hear your story and get some insights onto the whole uh, crazy world of crowdfunding. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Where can people check out your stuff or anything you'd like to point people to? Yeah, so obviously, patreon.com slash Lords of the Trident. If you've enjoyed this talk, go check it out. You know, give us a buck if you feel like it. See what we're up to. You know, you don't have to stay on forever, but you might learn something or you might just have fun. The number one stop for Lords of the Trident is, of course, our domain name, lordsofthetrident.com, the most metal site on the internet. I'd make sure, here's a little tip, make sure to use the most metal browser that you have, <laughs> which is probably Chrome, because there's no other browsers that are named after a metal. I mean, Edges. I mean, like Edge, yeah, but dude, come on. If you use Edge, just get, no way. Uh-uh, get, get, get out of here. Yeah, no, that that's true. But um, yeah, lordsofthetrident.com. We have, uh, please subscribe to us on YouTube too. We do a lot of stuff, a lot of really fun stuff on YouTube. YouTube.com slash lordsofthetrident. And then basically we're pretty much everywhere else on the internet. We got a Twitter, we got a Twitch, we got a, we still have a MySpace for some reason. I don't know why, but we do. So if you type Lords of the Trident into Google, we're like the first 50 pages and then things start to get weird. But yeah, YouTube.com slash Lords of the Trident, Patreon.com slash Lords of the Trident, and Lords of the Trident.com. Go check those out. And uh, if you like what we're doing, yeah, toss us a buck. So that's it for my conversation today with Ty Christian, a.k.a. Fang von Rathenstein. I think I pronounced that right. Maybe I put too much of an accent on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> but Ty of Lords of the Trident, the most metal band on earth. I hope you see now why I was so freaking excited about this episode coming out. So if you would do me a favor, would you share this episode if you learned something or got something out of it or have just been enjoying this series in general? I would love to be able to grow our audience and get this kind of content in front of more independent artists who want to grow in the music business. So 
please share this episode. If you want to tag me, you can tag me at David Ryan Olson on Instagram or at Music Business Mindset or at evergreen.records. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you just give us a quick five-star review so more people find the show? It really, really helps a lot. But for now, that's it. And we'll see you next time.